So I'm kind of shocked. I'm going to move the props out of the way. I'm kind of shocked that it is a beautiful, sunny Easter morning. I'm new to Washington State. I was shocked that we had snow on Christmas, but I was thinking we were going to have snow on Easter, and it's gorgeous, and I'm so happy. Because one of my traditions growing up is we would do an Easter sunrise service. We would go out to a, I grew up in the wine country of California, and we'd go out to this field, and we'd start to celebrate Resurrection Sunday outside, and the sun would burst over the horizon, and it would be this glorious moment. And I thought, I don't know if that ever happens in Washington. But today, there was. And, and it reminds me that that practice wasn't usually done. This is something that the early church has been doing for generations, these sunrise services. And while we did it in a field out in the wine country, uh, the early church used to do it in cemeteries. They would meet Easter morning in graveyards, and they would celebrate an empty tomb. Which makes me kind of turn my mind in that direction. And I have a question for you. What do you believe really happens when we die? Our culture usually gives us one of two answers. Society either says that at death you cease to be, or you go to a better place. Answer number one, you cease to be. Everything fades to black. Your, your conscious existence is snuffed out and your organic matter, your, your body, is broken down and recycled into the environment. We're also given a, another option. We can say, hey, you go to a better place. You see a bright light and the ethereal part of you Whatever it is that makes you, you, your soul, your personality, your, your spirit, it's transported to some higher plane. You become one with the cosmos. You enter the presence of God. You become some sort of angelic being who watches over your loved ones from the heavens. And the conversation usually stops right there because we lack any useful data. Neither science nor philosophy can kind of probe these depths. And it's not like a bunch of people have died and come back to tell us what crossing over, what death, if there's anything there on the other side. And I know we have stories of folks who die on the surgeon's table or are brought back, but I'm a little skeptical because the body in those moments is just, there's so much stress, the neurons are firing, I don't know if I can look at that sensory data as, as really authoritative testimony on death and what lies beyond. So we're kind of left with those two options. Your story will either end abruptly or it'll linger on in some sort of vague, blissful afterlife. That's all society can tell us. Do either of those answers satisfy? Do either give you hope in the face of death? And I guess if it's option one, if I just poof out of existence, my hope is sort of this. I had a good run. 
It was fun while it lasted. I, I loved and I was loved in return. And I leave behind a legacy and my wife and my kids, they're, they're cared for. What more could I have asked for? And if we linger into kind of that vague, disembodied afterlife, I guess I'd say, well, my hope is death is the end of struggle and pain and strife. And sure, I'll miss everything here, but at least I'll have rest and peace. Death is this escape. It's transcendence. It's not as exciting as living, but I guess it might not be half bad. Now, Christianity doesn't actually endorse either of those two answers. In fact, Jesus speaks of a very different sort of future. Christianity places its hope in the resurrection of the body. What is resurrection? Well, let's define the term. First, resurrection is not resuscitation. I used to be an EMT. Resuscitation is emergency treatment. It's designed to kind of restore blood flow and breathing in the wake of trauma or cardiac arrest. Recitation means restoring someone back to health, aiding their recovery so they can continue their regular life. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. It literally means to raise up, to awaken To repair, it implies a change in status, usually for the better. It's not the restoration of the life you had before. It's being raised and transformed and elevated to a new, higher sort of life. A life that is unquenchable and unending. And once you've experienced resurrection, death can't touch you. You'll never die again. Sounds pretty crazy, huh? And know that not only modern folks struggle with this notion, the ancient Greeks actually thought it was pretty ridiculous sounding as well. Indeed, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and this chapter records a dialogue between the Apostle Paul and some Greek skeptics on this very issue of resurrection. And here's what Paul has to say, and he gets a little passionate here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 34 through 36. He says, For some in Corinth have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, but someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul doesn't like the tone of those questions. He doesn't like the belittling attitude behind it. But the Greeks, they just can't buy it. They can't wrap their minds around the logistics of it. And really to them, resurrection doesn't even sound that desirable. They viewed this flesh as this kind of corrupted prison that you longed to be released from. So to tell them that they were going to spend the rest of their days trapped in a body 
sounded less like a new lease on life and more like being a zombie. And they just, they didn't, it struck them as nutty nonsense. It didn't, it wasn't a culturally popular notion. Yet here is Paul presenting resurrection as the center of our Christian hope. And just listen to the message, the gospel, this good news that he shares in every city he visits. He says this in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to many. That is his gospel. And remember when I said we didn't have enough useful data to talk about death. Well, Paul says, I'm going to throw some data on the table. Jesus died, was buried, and after three days in a cold, dark tomb, he rose from the grave. And Paul says, guess what? And I saw him with my own eyes. Over 500 people saw him alive again. And what's more, we touched him, we, we ate with him, we embraced him. He was no ghost or illusion. He was flesh and blood. He was the same man. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God made flesh. And you can't fake those scars because they said he retained the marks of his crucifixion. So in every city that Paul goes, he gets up and says, hey, do you want to have hope in the face of death? Come meet the man who passed through death and came out the other side victorious. Come meet the man who punched death in the face and walked out of his own grave. And the resurrection of Jesus was not just God stealing a soul back from death. It was an announcement that death's reign is over. That her hold on the world was coming to an end. And the early Christians, they worshipped Jesus as the firstborn of the dead. They said, we found the one who is the resurrection of the li- and the life, and we want everyone to know it. The power of death in our world has been broken. And now Jesus is going to share with us his victory over evil, over injustice, over sin, over death with all those who place their trust in him. What a great story and a powerful hope. But I feel like we as Christians, we've lost track of this resurrection hope. Sure, we've never stopped believing that Jesus rose from the dead, but we've forgotten somehow that his resurrection was a sign. It was a promise. It was a guarantee that one day our bodies too would be raised to new lives. Somewhere along the way, we took our resurrection hope and we kind of put it in the back shelf and we lost track of it a little bit. Storing it in a place where it wouldn't touch or impact our daily lives. And it's sad. And we actually see this in the way that Christians, as we deal with our dead, 
It was used to be Christian tradition that when a believer died, they'd be put in a box in the ground. They'd be facing east. And we would write on their tombstone the Latin word resurgum, which means I will rise. Now, it is more common for us to cremate our dead. And that is no, Jesus, if God created the universe, he can remake a body from ashes. But I think the symbolism is significant. Now we cremate our dead and we write, not resurgum, I will rise. We write, rest in peace. As if death is the end of that person's story. You see, we've abandoned our historic Christian hope in the resurrection of the dead. And we've baptized the culture's kind of belief in some vague, floaty, happy afterlife. We've called that heaven and we've said it's, that's our hope. We've ignored what Jesus has given us about our actual future, about the resurrection of our bodies. So I really think we need to get back to our historic Christian hope in resurrection. And I want to use this text, 1 Corinthians 15, to just ample answer a few simple questions for us. What happens when we die? How are the dead raised? What will our resurrected body be like? And considering all this, what hope do Christians have in the face of death? So you guys ready to dive in? And just want to let you know, if you have a wiggly kid, I know I'm talking long and I have a little bit of a sing song in my voice. Uh, the nursery is open for a wiggle room if they need to like, you know, scream in celebration this Easter morning. No shame. And don't, parents, don't freak out. This is family worship. We like the sound of little kids in our service. But what happens when we die? <laughs> So we're in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. It's this long, beautiful, complicated chapter, the longest that Paul ever wrote. And it says almost nothing about heaven or what happens at the moment of death. The closest that we get is just this passing reference to those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Because of Jesus' resurrection, Paul says that those who have died in the faith, that have died trusting in Jesus, they've not actually perished. They've simply fallen asleep. Now that's a metaphor, they're dead. But Paul is saying death is not their end. They're resting peacefully, but they will wake up again. Paul's eager to talk about resurrection here, the waking up part. He doesn't have much to say in 1 Corinthians 15 about the sleeping part. But we do hear him in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He kind of sums it up this way. He says, away from the body and at home with the Lord. I don't know what the experience of death is like, but I, we can have confidence that when we're away from here, 
we're at home with Jesus. When we're in Christ, we're never in limbo. Jesus walks with us every step of the way. I remember a few years ago, we buried my abuelita, my, the matriarch of our family. Her name was Amada de Jesus, beloved of Jesus. A great name, and now my eldest daughter's middle name. And as we were walking alongside of her in those final moments, it was like handing her off to the Lord. Abuelita, we love you, and Jesus loves you, and Jesus is holding you. And it was like passing a baton. Go be with your Lord, away from the body, present with the Lord. Look also at what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. To the repentant thief on the cross, crucified next to him, he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief had asked him, Hey, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, on that future day, at the end of history, when, when God rules the world, don't forget me. And Jesus looks over at him and says something surprising. He says, brother, we're both going to die today. But you don't have to wait for your happy ending at the end of history. Because truly today you will be with me in paradise. We'll be together again momentarily. Paradise is another word picture. It comes from the Persian word for a well-watered, well-ordered garden. It's a place of beauty and luxury and peace. A garden to rest and recharge in and forget about the cares and the struggles of this world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a different word picture. He says, In my Father's house... There are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be with me also. We get a room in God's house. We get to kick it at home with Jesus in a place that he prepares special for us. It sounds heavenly. But there's something we miss here when we hear that word room. We don't know if it's supposed to translate it room or mansion or, or whatnot, but one thing is clear. The Greek word mone always refers to temporary lodging. It's like a hotel. You might have a room, a suite, an entire bungalow, all to yourself, but eventually... The vacation ends and you check out of the hotel. The same is true here. You check out at the resurrection. You're raised to new life. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, the early Christian future hope centered firmly on resurrection. The first Christians did not simply believe in life after death, they virtually never spoke of simply going to heaven when they died. When they did speak of heaven as a post-mortem after-death destination, 
they seemed to regard this heavenly life as a temporary stage on the way to the eventual resurrection of the body. Paul's teaching us that there are two stages to this process. First, there is death and whatever lies immediately beyond it. But second, we look ahead to a resurrection, to a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. Right away, there's rest and joy in God's presence. But then we get to the end of the story, to Revelation chapter 21, and it's all about heaven coming down to earth. That's our Christian hope. We get both heaven and the resurrection. Rest in peace and I will rise. And that sounds pretty awesome to me. Well, let's look at our second question. How are the dead raised? And we can bang this one out pretty fast because what Corinthians tells us is that it happens by the power of God. There is no natural explanation to it. Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection depends wholly and utterly on God's power. There's no logical process except the logic of God's character that he is ever faithful to those he calls his own. Resurrection requires God to act to create us new. There's no default happy afterlife. God has to intervene and do the miraculous. But as believers, we can have confidence because we read in Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. If it happened to Jesus, take heart, it will happen to you. Okay, so what is this resurrected body going to be like? Paul says in verses 36 and 37, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is what Beth was teaching us. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. It's like one of those old SAT analogies. Your present body is to your resurrected body as a seed is to the plant that grows from it. The seed's not the same as the plants, but they are connected. They're still the same organism. A child might say, you know, Sam the seed grows into Sam the plant, but it still is Sam. That's our resurrection bodies. He says the bodies we have now will die. They will be buried in the earth. And like that old dry seed that sat dormant on the shelf, will seem dead and inert. Like our stories are over, but one day a miracle will happen and by the power of God, life will sprout from death and a new embodied sort of life will begin. Paul continues in verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. When it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit. It's like going from seed life to plant life. We go from mortal life to resurrection life. And our transformation will be as great as that of a little caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That little caterpillar will curl up in its little cocoon and it will die. Quote, unquote. And this slow, crinkly, hairy little inchworm will never be seen again. But it's when it's raised, it'll be this glorious, beautiful creature that can fly. That's what resurrection is. It's the transformation to a higher embodied sort of life that is unquenchable and unending. And our minds can't really grasp it, but if you want a picture of it, look at Jesus after his resurrection. Death could no longer touch him. He was forever free of weakness and disease and decay. And he can ascend to heaven. He can disappear. He can show up in locked rooms. It definitely seems like he's working with, you know, humanity 2.0 operating system. And he's got some kind of upgrades in his hardware, but he's still flesh and blood. He still eats and drinks and looks like himself. You, they still could talk to him and touch him. And interestingly, he keeps his scars for all eternity. Those marks of what it costs to save us. So Jesus is the model. He's the firstborn of the dead. But when you call him firstborn, it's because he's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And when we look at him after his resurrection, we get a glimpse of what our future is going to be like. So in light of all this, what hope do we have in the face of death? And the chapter ends with these beautiful words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What hope does resurrection, both Jesus's and ours, give us in the face of death? Well, death is a scary transition. I imagine it might be painful. It is certainly the greatest of all unknowns. It is the moment when we are entirely out of control and we lose our grip on everything we know and love. But Jesus has gone ahead and removed death's sting. He's gone ahead and he's removed Thing. He's removed a little bit of the mystery. He's removed the fear. 
in the moment of our death, if we've hitched our wagon to Jesus, if you've placed your hope and your trust and your life in his hands, you have someone who's gone ahead of you and promises to walk with you every step of the way. What's more, the monster on the other side of that door has been defeated. Death is not the end of your story. Jesus has defanged death. He's removed its sting and no longer does it have the power to inflict terror or permanent suffering upon us. Jesus took the worst that death had to throw and like a boxer, he absorbed the most powerful punch and death landed its haymaker on Jesus and he hit the ground. But that was it. Death's power was spent and he got back up and death could no longer touch him. The punch landed, but Jesus didn't stay down. As Peter says at Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The gig is up. Jesus has proven himself to be stronger and now the belt is his for all eternity. And his victory over death can be ours as well. Another reason for hope? Death is not the end of family and community. If your loved ones believe, the resurrection means that we'll get to again be together in a tangible and real way. There's a second chapter to our lives together. In some cases, we get to live the first chapter that we missed in this life. I think about this in our family. Uh, We, uh, in kind of a late pregnancy, we had a miscarriage and we lost a baby. And it was a hard time. There was mourning and tears and brokenness. And in that moment, we were comforted by our four-year-old daughter, Eliana. Eliana's nine now, but at the time she was four. And she didn't comfort us by saying, hey, the baby's in a better place or anything like that. No joke, what she said is one day we'll get to see and meet the baby face-to-face when we get to see and meet Jesus face-to-face. I came out of the mouth of a four-year-old. But that is our hope. For those of you who the story in this life didn't go as you wanted it to, you lost someone far too early, or you didn't get to say what you wanted to say. And Jesus, that's not the end of family. It's not the end of community. We get to be together in a real, tangible way. We get to hug and talk And experience and celebrate one another. Not in some weird, vague, floaty afterlife. But in a tangible, real way. So Jesus has gone ahead. He's removed death's sting. In Christ, death is not the end of family and community. And finally, resurrection gives us hope in the here and now. Even today, you can taste a bit of that future that is in store for us. 
You may have noticed that the power of death is not confined to the graveyard or the ICU. Death is causing havoc all around us through poverty and addiction and violence and war and and racism and systems of injustice. There are, death is crushing people underfoot. And it can be real tough to wade into those places that seem hopeless, that seem like death is in full sway, in full control. And we look at some of the ugliness that we see in our communities and in our lives, and we are tempted to say those are hopeless situations. You might be tempted to say, why should I sacrifice for the needs of others? Is any of this ultimately going to make a difference? Death is just going to have its way in this life. Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, now be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor in this life is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus means we have infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world and to to work against the forces of death because we know the end of the story. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, the victory was settled. Now it's going to take a while for that victory to be fully here, fully experienced by each and every one of us. But the battle's already been won. And so if you're fighting a skirmish against the forces of death in some far-flung battlefield of your neighborhood or the brokenness in your family or, or your fight with addiction, know that it is not hopeless because death has been defeated. New life is ours and resurrection and the remaking of the world will happen. We can wade into places of death and brokenness and injustice because Jesus is stronger. He's proved it. He's going to resurrect our bodies and he's going to remake the world because the world, our matter, matters. God does not tolerate the world as it is. He's prepared to transform it and resurrect it and elevate it to a higher form of life and victory. So take heart. Be steadfast and immovable. Doing the work that God has given us to do in big ways and in small ways. Because the resurrection, the empty tomb has already changed everything. Death's end has already begun. He's the firstborn of the dead. The living one. The victorious one. Our life giver. With him in the lead, we can have hope no matter our circumstances. So I'm going to invite the worship team to to come up, but 
What is your hope? Are you hoping just to have a good run? The best kind of version of life that you can seem to, to have? Are you hoping in the vague, floaty afterlife? That, you know, I don't know what it looks like and it might be kind of dull, but at least I'll be at rest. We are given this concrete hope. Both in the resurrection of our bodies and because of that in the remaking of our world. Have you anchored your hope here? Have you anchored your hope here? If you haven't, or if you've taken your hope that was here and and started placing it somewhere else, I invite you to trust in the one who died and came back again. The one who says no problem is too big for me. No brokenness in your past. No selfish or harming act that you've inflicted on another. All can be made new. have to die with me and be raised to new life. You have to let me do away with that old hope, with that old trust, with that old plan, with your own sufficiency, and you have to trust wholly in me. Let me wash you clean and do away with all the the evil you've done. Let me fight your battles because I am stronger. Let me bring you to life again. So if that's your decision, let me pray. Let's pray a prayer of trust. A prayer of receiving God's grace. And if you're a believer, place your hope here again. In our true Christian hope. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Dear God, we come before you this Easter morning. And we trust you. tired of being sad little seeds in the jar. We accept what you did on this cross, God, when you defanged death, when you broke the power of our sin, when you began to put a definitive end to evil and injustice. And so we trust you put our life in your hands. We say, yes. We don't understand it. God, our minds sometimes can't grasp these things. But we trust you. We face the great unknown of our life and the great unknown of death, trusting you. 
hold us close, make us new. Share with us your victory and new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to end our worship with an action of response. We're going to invite Cam, one of our elders, to come forward and do a little ladder moving. Because one of our traditions here at Elam, and by traditions, I mean this is our second year doing it, <laughs> and will continue to be a tradition, <laughs> is we remember that what looks sad and like death doesn't stay that way for us because Jesus rose from the dead. Not just these ones. And so what we're going to do is if you have a flower that you brought with you or if you don't, we're going to decorate the cross as this proclamation that death no longer has power, that death no longer has the final word. This symbol of death is going to sprout to new life. So as we sing, I'm going to invite you in a prayerful way to come up, and we're going to put the ladder nearby, and Cam will be your spotter. And if you are nimble and daring, you can put something at the top. If you're less nimble than you want to be, I encourage you to put something at the bottom. But this is our act of faith. This is our proclamation. When the women went into the tomb and they looked in and they saw the grave clothes, there was a little folded napkin. It didn't look like this, it looked like this. In Jewish culture, when the man of the house was at the dinner table, if he crumpled his napkin and threw it on the table, it meant he was done, he was not coming back. But if they folded it, and he put it down neatly at his place, it was the sign that I'm returning, that the story is not over. So as you put this flower on the cross, remember that's what we're announcing. He's coming back. It's not a vague floaty afterlife that we all get to. It's the resurrection of the body, the remaking of the world, and the return of Jesus to make all things new. So as you put the flower on that cross, may it be your act of proclamation that he is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship.